Tomorrow by. Good morning. I'm Judith Lay and this is Praise, the programme that connects faith and daily life. When I was offered the chance to interview Michael Harvey when he visited the island, I thought I'd be meeting the man who invented Back to Church Sunday, a programme that was launched 15 years ago. It aimed to offer ideas and support to established churches eager to invite more people to join them, but unsure of the best way to do it. However, when Michael and I sat down in the studio, I discovered there was a much bigger story to tell, and in fact, Back to Church Sunday wasn't even his idea. And I've been delving into the Praise Archive again and found a recording that I made 21 years ago this week in St George's Church and the speaker, Rabbi Lionel Blue. But let's start with some music from their collection appropriately called Morning Gladness, the St Michael Singers and Christ Whose Glory Fills the Skies, Christ the True and Only Light. St. Michael Singers with Charles Wesley's hymn, Christ Whose Glory Fills the Skies. Now, I think it's true to say that we all have a little bit of a reluctance to go into an unfamiliar place, somewhere we've never been before, on our own, and not knowing anybody who is in there. And I think it's certainly true if we were considering going to church, where perhaps we've never been before, or perhaps not been for a very long time. Maybe that's why cathedrals are so popular, 
in their size and the, the size of their congregations, we feel that we can just slip in, we can lose ourselves. Well, maybe we can get an insight on all of that in our programme this morning, because my guest is a man with a fascinating story. Michael Harvey, good morning and welcome to Praise. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Michael, you want us to become a welcoming culture in our churches, something I think we probably think we already are, but judging by the glint in your eye, you think we can do it a lot better. You're the man who invented Back to Church Sunday, and you did this at your own expense and in your own time. So let's go right back to the beginning and tell me, Michael Harvey, a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, one day uh, I was having a cup of coffee with the communications director of the Bishop of Manchester who had this idea about a welcome Sunday and uh, she changed the course of my life by saying, uh, you know, Michael, if I take the media side of this thing, which we hadn't named at that point, would you look after the church leaders? And that's how it, how it started. Prior to that, I'd uh, been a businessman. I uh, started a business which was quite successful and it got acquired by a big financial services company. And after that point, I'd set up some consultancies. And so I, I really, really became intrigued when I went to start to work with church leaders and they started to tell me some of the difficulties. And because the business that I'd started was based on why things don't work rather than why things do work, I was in hook, line and sink because the experience that I had seemed to be really ringing bells with this new area. What kind of things were the clergy telling you that they were coming up against? The same thing in the introduction where you said that there may well be a reluctance for people to step into a church that's unknown. Uh, There was the same reluctance on the other side of actually offering an, an invitation to somebody who was unknown. And then, you know, what we're actually going to invite people to. Christians find it really difficult to actually invite those who they love, those who are close to them, those who they work with. And I was to find that as I've done this 15 year journey. You know, let's kind of call this word reluctance fear. Let's call it what it is. People are afraid you know, afraid of coming into a church building. Those who are in the pews are afraid of actually inviting people. It's fear. That's the problem. And fear imprisons us. And I'm not just talking here now about inviting to church. I'm talking about life. You know, we suddenly discover, as we actually talk about this subject, that there are things that we want to do, but we don't do. And without us knowing it, we're in a prison And it's really hard to get out of it. So let's go back to that cup of coffee and that conversation. Is that where Back to Church Sunday was born? Indeed. It actually was somebody else's idea. And I developed it alongside a group of friends to start off with. And it was entitled Back to Church Sunday because it was going to take place on the last Sunday in September. And from a media perspective, the media person had noticed in WH Smith, Back to School. And so we thought, actually, stuff going on around that time back to would be the the right thing to do. Little did we realise that back to was going to cause us some problems. And the problems were? Well, people in churches then started to say to us, well, you can't invite anybody if they've never been. So, okay, looking back on it now, because certainly Back to Church Sunday had a lot of publicity. Looking back on that, how successful was it? Uh, hundreds of thousands of invitations have been offered as a result back to church Sunday and genuinely offered to people, you know, some of which have been accepted, some which haven't been accepted. One of the major discoveries is that a simple invitation can transform somebody's life. It went to 18 countries. 
multiple denominations and allowed me to continue the research to try and kind of work out what was going on. I thought when I first started this out that it was about welcome. That's what I thought it was about. Then I discovered that actually before you can welcome anybody, you've got to invite them. So it became about invitation. And then I discovered actually the vast majority of us who sit in the pews have no intention of inviting anyone. So it became about formation, became about discipleship. And then just latterly over the past 18 months, it's not really about welcome. It's not really about invitation. It's not really about formation. It's about healing. If we go back to this idea that this thing brings a fear in us, both those who are actually kind of being invited and those who are reluctant to invite, both parties feel a fear. The question then becomes, what are we afraid of? That's the question. Do you think in a church context it's a fear of us not being found good enough, that we will invite people and they'll come and they'll say, you've invited me to this? If we look at our Bible stories again, and again, I think we need to recapture the Christian heritage that's been foundational in all of our lives, whether you go to church or whether you don't go to church. God seems to use people in our Bible stories who don't think they're good enough. At the heart of Christianity, it's God using hopeless people, people who get it wrong, people who have got dodgy pasts, stuff that's not quite kind of gone right in the past. And God seems to kind of bring this up at the point of mission. This is why it means something to us, you know, why we are afraid. And God basically says, now it's time for healing. I'm going to take you to that place and remind you of my presence with you as you do this. Essentially, it's an unfolding message, and it's the 15 years of the research in this area, trying to understand why people who don't go to church would pass a church building and think, I'd love to go in, but well, I'm not good enough. From a church perspective, it's all about how do we invite more people. But it's the discovery of why we don't invite more people, which then leads to the obvious conclusion that this is a very, very painful thing on both sides and that God is really at work in the midst of the pain. It's really exciting. It's, just, it's the rediscovery of the brilliance of Christianity. You know, it's almost as if our Bible story of some way have got desiccated. We've forgotten the value within some of these stories which apply to our lives today. And we've also kind of thought that all of the good stuff of Christianity has happened 2,000 years ago. I mean, how ridiculous. When we come to worship God on a Sunday morning, that God is dwelling amongst the praises of God's people. So for me, the rediscovery that God is really at the centre of our lives and that still small voice that from time to time, whether you go to church or whether you don't go to church, is calling you. That's the reason to really explore this in our lives. The Lord is present here. The Lord is present here. The Lord is present here, come worship. The Lord is present here, the Lord is present here. The Lord is present here, come worship. Brought near by Jesus' blood, brought near by Jesus' blood. Brought near by Jesus' blood, we worship. 
those who are already church members and those who we would like to join us. But there's something now that I'm really interested to know. Michael Harvey, what got you going to church? It's the story of my mum. My mum one morning invited me to church. Well, actually, she said, get your coat, you're coming. But it was, it was as close to an invitation as we can possibly kind of get. But that was kind of quite extraordinary because I never lived with my mum. I never knew my father. And my name is not Michael Harvey. I'd had lots of things taken away from me as a youngster. But that invitation from my mum that Sunday morning, three years later, started to transform my life. And so three years later, at the church that, to which I was going on a Sunday morning, prompted by my mum, I met the youth leader, whose name was Frank. I remember the very first thing that Frank said to me, he said, Michael, if you start coming on a, on a Sunday evening, you qualify for the church football team. He said, football? Well, started coming on a Sunday evening. It's a long story, but, you know, gradually, what I discovered is that Frank believed in me before I started to believe in myself. And I know fundamentally that actually at the heart of Christianity is about taking broken people and healing broken people. And that's why I think invitation is so important that there's another eight-year-old boy out there waiting for an invitation. There's a 15-year-old girl out there waiting for an invitation. There's a 70-year-old couple out there waiting for an invitation because there's something missing. You know, that God-shaped hole. You know, there's something is missing from people's lives. But much, much easier to invite that 70-year-old couple than it is to invite that 8-year-old boy or the 15-year-old girl. Because the 8-year-old, the 15-year-old, today they have busy lives, there's so much more crowding in, there's other ways that they can have access to the football team and the netball team. So there's a whole lot of challenges going on here for the church that wants to grow, that wants to be welcoming. Yeah, and why shouldn't this be hard? Why shouldn't there be challenges? What is it that we've done about Christianity that it has to be easy? It's almost as if we We've said that actually when God is present in our lives, that it should be easy. If we look at our Bible stories, when God comes into the life of somebody in our Bible stories, 
it becomes uneasy. <laughs> it starts to unsettle the person and they start to go on a journey. Christianity was always called the way. At the very beginning, we are people of the way. And that way was not easy. It's almost as if the word struggle nowadays should not be associated with Christianity. But we're going to have to take some verses out of our Bible if it's not about struggle. You know, like I glory in suffering. I glory in suffering. Who wrote that? But suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that the heart of what God is doing is almost like a, a calling forth hope from within us? There's something more to come. And everybody knows that. Everybody knows that where we are presently, whatever age we are, there is something more to come. There's more to contribute. There's something more to give to the life that we've actually been given. I fundamentally believe that Christianity is about transformation. It is about becoming the person God imagined us to be. I think at the heart of our worship services, if we truly take the words that we say seriously, where we come in and we welcome the presence of God, where we confess that which has gone wrong in our lives, when we hear absolution, where we hear forgiveness for those things, where we hear the reading of the word, where we try to understand how we can live our lives and how we are sent forth from that point onwards. If we take the order of our service seriously, it has the ability to transform and heal our lives. If we don't believe God is present, you know, it becomes a club. We have to rediscover the presence of God to transform. The same power that is present in our Bible stories is available now through our weak humanness. You know, we can all experience in our lives and we do experience in our lives. God is calling individuals. And if our churches can help people, invitation is vital in this area. Michael Harvey, thank you very much indeed for coming and talking to us. There is a website, isn't there? Culture of Invitation. Cultureofinvitation.com and there's a couple of books that I've written, Unlocking the Growth and Creating a Culture of Invitation in Your Church. And if you're interested in the pieces on fear and healing, you'll find it in the book, Creating a Culture of Invitation in Your, in your Church. Michael, please tell me that you attend a church that's absolutely bursting at the seams with people. I think God has got me doing this because he knows that the church that I go to also needs to hear this message on a regular basis. But we're getting there. Thank you to my guest, Michael Harvey. And there's a link to Michael's Culture of Invitation website and details of his books on the Praise blog. And now, something from the Praise archive that I recorded in St George's Church here in Douglas exactly 21 years ago. The occasion was a thanksgiving for the work of St John Ambulance on the island, organised by their commander at the time, who was also the island's chief constable, Robin Oak, who introduced and welcomed the guest speaker, Rabbi Lionel Blue. Rabbi Blue began by taking us back some 50 years to a difficult conversation that he had with his mother. I was at Oxford and I rang up my mother and I said to her, Ma, I said, I've decided to become a rabbi. And there was a pause at the other end of the telephone and I thought that my mother was overcome with emotion, you see, at what her son was actually doing. And then after a while, my mother's voice came over the telephone. She said, 
Lionel, she said, you're doing it to spite us. <laughs> my mother was a business lady. My mother was not a Yiddish mama in the normal sense. She disliked housework and she disliked cooking intensely. My mother was going back to the office. Then my mother rang up my grandfather, her father, and said, Daddy, she said, Lionel wants to become a reformed rabbi. She said, what should I think about it? And my grandfather said, he'll go and find out, because he had a boon drinking companion, a broken down canter, who we used to share a bottle of whiskey with. And he consulted this broken down canter and rang back my mother and said, Hetty, he said, Lionel's onto a good thing. A modern rabbi, he said, all he has to, a modern rabbi has to do is to tell people to be good. He said, the cantor said he sings his guts out for the whole week and he can hardly afford a bottle of whiskey, he said. But Lionel, a modern rabbi, is onto a good thing. You encourage him, Hetty. My mother, her situation was rather odd. My grandmother decided that she must at least have one of her children who got out of the slavery of the sweatshops of the East End or out of being imprisoned to the kitchen all her life. And my mother was the brightest of her children. So my mother became a businesswoman and was very proud of the fact. Uh, my mother hated cooking in every shape or form. She didn't even like making a cup of tea. My mother had really very, very little sense of religion at all. Religion was not part of her program. She never thought much about death. She was interested really in life. I've never been very good at business myself. I've been awful at it. The businessmen at the first congregation I went to sensed this, and they tried to take the mickey out of me. And the businessmen in my congregation took me to little parties, you see, and somehow all their, the jokes that they told at these parties had a certain point which I felt was it was directed at me. I felt there was a certain animosity against me, though I'd really done them no harm. For example, one of them said, well, Rabbi, they said, um, the serv evening service was about to start, and there was a young rabbi, very much like yourself, uh, Rabbi, he said, and, but he hadn't arrived, and nobody knew what to do. And there was one man who said, an old man who said, don't worry, he said, my dog will take the service. Your dog take the service, they always said. Sure, he said, you watch. And he called his dog. And the dog patted his way you know, to the desk, put his paws on the reading desk, growled, barked for silence, and then growled his way through the liturgy. And at the end, the dog barked amen, put his paws down, you see, and humbly walked back to his master. And everybody came to the chap and said, Oh, they said, that what a wonderful dog you've got. They said, why that dog should be a rabbi? And the man said, you tell him he wants to be in business, man. <laughs> I, I was really in a dilemma how to take these stories because if I laughed, I had feet of clay. And if I didn't laugh, I was a prude. So I was in a catch-22 situation. I sat back and tried to think, now why were they doing all this? It was another story they told which gave me really the key to it. They said that there was this old Jewish guy who went for a holiday in the Alps and somehow had got lost, you know, in the snow and ice. And they sent search parties for him and dogs to track him, you know, and all this sort of thing. And finally, then they shouted out through all the glaciers, Mr. Cohen, Mr. Cohen, Mr. Cohen. And finally a little voice comes out from a glacier. It's all right, it's all right. I gave last week. <laughs>
And I think this was what needled the businessmen in my congregation. They thought I only wanted them for their money. And it is true, because every time I had a down-and-out story or something like that, I used to go to them, and they were, they were a very generous lot. But they thought to themselves, you see, that I was a young man with hardly any experience of life, and they had a lot of experience of life, and I only went to them for their checkbooks. I didn't go to them for themselves or their experience of life. And I understood why they tried to needle me. They felt that uh, I'd underprized them. And in a way, I had. It came to me very, very much at uh, a service that I was taking in Belgium at the time. I'd arrived very late for the service, but I'd had very little time. I'd had a very, very busy time. I was wandering all over Europe at that time because I was European director for the progressive synagogues on the continent. So I was running from Berlin to Rome to goodness knows where, trying to see to the little post-war Jewish communities and try to stabilize them and see what, what one could do for them. So I hadn't really prepared a sermon for this congregation in Belgium. So I thought, okay, I'll, you know, so I gave them, you know, one of the ones which any minister, you know, has to hand, you know, I told them about um, how dreadful materialism is, how everybody's going after freezers and fridges and second cars and, and all this sort of stuff and how they should be ashamed of themselves, you see, and um, how they weren't humble enough and how they were spending too much, you know, and what a dreadful thing it all was, you see. And I gave them this sermon. And everybody afterwards, you know, came and they shook my head and said, thank you, Rabbi. But one man, an elderly man, came out of the synagogue and said to me, he said, Rabbi, he said, I think the sermon you gave was one of the wickedest things I have ever heard. So I, I just hadn't expected such a reaction. So I said, well, what, what, what do you mean? He said, I was in Berlin, he said, when the First World War ended. I saw the entire business collapse, and I saw children in the street starving. He said, and it's out of that misery and starvation which took place from 1917 and then the collapse of business in 1929, he said, and all the, the inflation and everything which went on, he said, out of that despair, he said, came Hitler. He said, you pray, Rabbi, instead, he said, never to despise the good things of life, never to despise refrigerators and freezers and second cars and prosperity. He said, never despise such things, he said. Just pray, he said, please, God, we learn how to spread them around so that everybody can share in the prosperity. He said, that's what you should pray for. And I never have prayed a sermon against the wickedness of materialism, you know, of material goods ever since. Now I tell people to thank God for them, but they also bring a responsibility, and that is spread them around, um, spread them around. So the businessmen talked to me a great deal. And also, I knew some of my congregation worked in the common market offices in Brussels at the time, and some of them had factories, and they used to take me around their factories and their, um, you know, and their offices. And I was stunned by the sheer technical ability of it all. You know, how wonderful it all was. You know, whether you liked it or didn't, or was for it or against, that, that the sheer technical expertise and know-how just, you know, just overwhelmed me. And I thought to myself that if the problems of Europe are 
are how to produce goods and how to organize things, then all the tools to do the job are here. We have them. We need never have um, such troubles as we had in the 20s and 30s again. That it's all there. But then it seemed to me that the problems of Europe, which took place, which led to the Second World War, were not just failures of technology. There, were also, there was also a failure of the spirit. There was a failure that we weren't tolerant enough, we weren't generous enough, we weren't nice enough to, um, to, to our neighbours, and that is what finally triggered the whole thing off. It wasn't just the, um, the collapse of the stock market in 1929, it was also the collapse of, of goodness in us. But then I thought to myself, but where, how does one produce goodness and generosity and all these things? Where are these such things manufactured? Where are the factories of spiritual things, the factories of the spirit? And then I thought to myself, well, I thought to myself, I suppose that they are the synagogues and the places of worship in Europe. These are the factories of the spirit. But most of them are empty for most of the time, at least the ones that I know, that they are very inefficient, this one accepted, um, that they're very inefficient. I'm thinking of my own. If they're inefficient, they're, that um, there's something... And I thought to myself, would it ever be possible that some of the enormous technology you know, which businessmen had. Could it ever, this efficiency they had, could it ever come, you know, our way into religion? Could we be as good at producing um, goodness and generosity and kindness as they were at producing goods? I'm, I'm honestly not sure of the answer. That remains, um, that remains to be seen. You see, and there's, a, there's an old story which both Christians and Jews share, and it goes like this. I know it in the form of a rabbi, Christians know it in the form of a mystic. Okay. A rabbi prayed to God, and he said, could he see heaven and hell? And God said, okay, I'll give you that if you want it. And the rabbi found himself before a great door, and the door opened, and inside there was a big table, round table, and in the center of the table there was a pot of the most delicious stew you can possibly imagine. You know, it's boeuf bourguignon, ragout of lamb, you know, Irish stew, mix them all together, you know, that was the flavor of it, and kosher too. And um, <laughs> that was the miracle. And, and around the edge of the table were all the diners. But all the diners were shrieking with hunger in that place. Because the spoons they had in their hand were so big that when they put them in the stew, they could not get those spoons back into their mouths. The spoons were just too big. 
So they were fainting and starving with hunger in that place where there was plenty. And the rabbi heard their shrieks and said to God, he said, take me to the other place, take me to heaven. And to his relief, the doors closed. The sound of the shrieks stopped. And the rabbi then found himself before a very similar door. And the door opened and the rabbi nearly passed out because there was exactly the same situation. There was the same table, there was the same delicious pot of stew, there were the same dead diners round it who had exactly the same spoons. But the difference this time was that they were using those spoons to feed each other. That was the difference between heaven and hell. And it would be in, it's very important to realize that we have all the ingredients for heaven and hell among us now. Uh, and whether Europe is going to be a place for heaven, peace, the kind of peace we've seen in Western Europe for 50 years, the first 50 years of peace that Western Europe has ever known, or whether it will be um, the hell of, what, of the concentration camps, the Stalinist gulags, and all that sort of thing, who can say? It is really, it, um, it is really up to us. Well, some people say that, well, God will intervene. You know, surely God will take a hand in all this. I went, I was in South Germany, and a lot of my friends were going to the site of a concentration camp there. And I decided I wouldn't join them because I'd had too much of those things and they gave me nightmares. So I stayed in a little church, you know, and I remember it was by a railway line. And I remember a train passed and I remember thinking, my God, that must have been the line on which all those cattle trucks of human misery must have gone to the concentration camps. And then something burst out of me. I said to God, I said, you know, a prayer, I said, why on earth didn't you take a hand in it? Because think of how many prayers must have been said in those, in those cattle trucks, which were never answered in any way that we can understand. And I sat back exhausted, and I said to myself, but how can God take a hand in it? Because he has no hands. And then as I went out of the church, a thought suddenly came into my mind. I suddenly thought that we are God's hands in this world, you and I. We are probably the only hands that God possesses. So a prayer to God, a question to God, why didn't you take a hand in it, is really a question, boomerangs back to us, why don't we take a hand in it? And another thought occurred to me, that the only power that God has in this world is the love that God inspires in us. That is the, an enormous power, but it is the only one, I think, on offer. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and earth are full of your glory.
was Rabbi Lionel Blue, the address that we recorded 21 years ago when he spoke to the members of St John Ambulance here on the island. Thank you for listening to this week's Praise Podcast. There's a new Praise Podcast available every Sunday morning. You can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify via the Manx Radio smartphone app or at manxradio.com. The Praise blog is where you'll find our full church notice board, alongside details of everything that we've talked about on today's programme. Again, go to manxradio.com, on the homepage, click on air, and on the drop-down menu, follow the link for blogs. So, till we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for your company, and I wish you, and those you love, every blessing in the days ahead. (laughs) 